So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 7, let's read this together. I'm going to talk about the kindness of, of God this morning. It says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this war world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, notice all of these attributes, and these are attributes that we sing about God this morning. Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now if you would, let's pray together over the Word this morning. Father, we're so grateful for your goodness and for your presence that we know is here this morning. And Lord, we just pray a blessing over each listener this morning, God, that, that, that you would speak your word, Father, in such a way, God, that it would take root in our hearts, that it would transform who we are. God, there's power in your word. There's power to set us free. God, there's, there's power to conform us into the image of your very son, Jesus Christ. And so we open our hearts, we open our minds this morning, and Holy Spirit, we ask that you would have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to talk about the kindness of God this morning. And if I'm being honest, kindness, as I'm, as I'm thinking about that this week and often as I think about it, it's one of the things that I pray about most in my life to try to be more of a kind person. You know, when I was in uh, Washington, D.C. this week, I'm walking around and normally, you know, especially when I'm around a big crowd, I'm kind of a stoic guy. Like you can't tell, I'm kind of emotionless. And nobody, and I was hanging out with some different people that I just met and about a couple days into it, they, they, they said to me, they said, you know, we really like Clay, but we're just not sure if he likes us or not. Amen. That's just kind of my personality. I don't mean to come off that way, but sometimes I can, and, and you all get it. Like some of us, we just come off a little bit sour, amen, and we've got to pray about what it means to be kind to other people, and I really have to work through that. I have to intentionally engage people and think to myself, Clay, be kind to these people, you know what I'm saying? You're a pastor, bro. Like you're trying to represent the Lord Jesus Christ here, you know, get it together. And, but you all understand, you know, my battle. I'm sure you understand my battle. When we talk about kindness, we're talking ultimately about the root of God's character and nature because God is love. And the definition of love, the first two things, it says love is patient. Love is kind. Right? And so you see this kindness of God represented in Scripture. And I love this in Ephesians chapter 2 because it gives this picture of what God is trying to do in our lives. It says, even when you and I were dead in trespasses and sins, we had gone in a wrong direction. We didn't know God, didn't want to know God, and we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were walking according to the course of this world, fulfilling the desires of the lusts of our flesh and of our mind. And we were children of wrath just like the rest of the world. But because God, who is rich and mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us he raised us all up from the dead gave us a new heart and a new mind and made us to sit in heavenly places together with Christ Jesus and he says this so that in the ages to come 
He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. That means that God is wanting to reveal to the world His kindness right now in this life, in your life, in my life, to raise you up from the dead, to give you a new life. But He says, you know what? It's going to take me ages and ages to come to reveal all of my kindness to you. Man, that's a lot of kindness. And so if I'm thinking about that and I impose that on our world today and we think about the kindness of God and I think about my own nature and personality, like we live in a pretty harsh world right now. Would you agree with that? We live in a world where people are currently building up tension and it seems like everybody is frustrated and everything is mounting up and everybody's aggravated and mad at somebody and upset at somebody that they disagree with. And in the past two years, they've actually used a woman's name to create a term Y'all ever heard of Karens? She's a Karen. Oh, do we have any Karens in here? You're probably the good kind. But Karen is a term that's been used here in the last couple of years just because such frustration and anger and outrage has mounted that you got this name for middle-aged white women who just walk around obnoxious and angry and trying to police everybody's behavior and button their, 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 their nose into stuff that ain't none of their business. Amen. And they troll Facebook and they get in everybody's stuff and they try to police your behavior and tell you what to do. And they're just aggravated, frustrated, and obnoxious. And really, deep down, if we're being honest, all of us got a little bit of caring in us. All of us got a little bit of it in us. And it's, and it's like tensions are starting to boil. And it's important that we as Christians don't allow this world and all of the aggravation of this world to drag us into a place where we respond and we react in the flesh like the rest of the world. I get that everybody's on 10, that everybody's outraged, that everybody don't like this group of people and that group of people don't like this group of people. But as Christians, we can disagree with people while still choosing to be kind to them. And that's a hard thing right now because we can slip over into the flesh just as soon as we wake up. That's why the Bible teaches that you've got to put off the old man and put on the new. That is created in righteousness and true holiness that demonstrates a different character than the rest of this world demonstrates. And see, when we project an image, people are looking at us because we represent God. And when we project an image that doesn't look like Jesus, people get a wrong view of God. And the world is becoming increasingly harsh. And it's essential that we step into a place of kindness. Now, harshness, I think that's the word that I come up with that everybody's dealing with. People are just harsh overall in general right now. And it means, in the Greek, it means to make bitter or to turn sour. It means that this sweetness and the mercy that should be in our hearts and in our, in our minds is gone from us. It also means to be grim, unpleasantly severe, stern, cruel, crude, rough, and raw. And see, I think a lot of people think that, you know what, this is just the way the world is. And if I'm going to get my point across, I got to be a little bit up there too, you know what I'm saying? Because they ain't going to understand if I don't tell them. I got to be the one to tell them. That's kind of the attitude that even Christians have adopted, hasn't it? And, and, and you know what, that's fine if you want to try that out. Let me know how that works for you. Tell me if you convince anybody of the love of God and bring them to a place of repentance. Let me know if that attitude is really doing the job for you in the, in the world around you. Or are you just actually creating a greater divide and revealing to people an image of God that is not accurate, accurate and true? And see, we've got to realize that as Christians, oftentimes we contribute to the culture of harshness, don't we? Everywhere I go, I kid you not, so, so even in Washington, D.C. this week, I meet people from California, from different states, and it's like, man, they're the kindest people in the world, and then all of a sudden, you know, they find out who I am, what I do. Well, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a pastor. Oh. 
Their face just turns. They frown. And, 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 here, and, and I, you could, you, it could be a number of different reasons. I don't, I don't want to be too judgmental or, or understand why people uh, feel that way. Obviously, they've got an image and a view of God and a view of pastors and a view of Christians that somehow really what we are is we're just angry and dogmatic and against everything they want to do. That's kind of what, how they view it, I think. And, and, and probably to a degree, that's how even in churches, how many of you, you've, all, you've, you've been in churches where really even within the churches, all they're doing is being dark, dogmatic and arguing about a bunch of foolishness a lot of times. And so we have to at least own up to the fact in our own responsibility that probably we have contributed to the harsh culture around us just a little bit ourselves. And see, when we project an image of God, right, when we are harsh, we project an image of God that is untrue. Now, let me, let me speak from my own, my own perspective. I became a pastor, I think, when I was about 26 years old. I should say a lead pastor when I was about 26 years old. And I remember probably about a year into that, I was dealing with some things in the church and some people were, were against some decisions that I wanted to make. And, and they said some things that really hurt my feelings. And my young little 26, 27-year-old self went to the house that night and I was boiling lava mad. You know what I'm talking about? You ever been that way? I, and I was just trying to suppress all that stuff and say, you know what? I'm going to take the high road. I'm going to do that. I'm going to take the high road. But when I got up to preach the next morning, I tell you, I preached a sermon, son, and I allowed my anger to boil over, and it started spewing out on the people. Now, here's the very funny thing about this, is that after I got done preaching, I kid you not, the vast majority of people in the church, which had been Christians from the time they were two until they were 75, came up to me and said, man, that was a powerful message right there. That's the most anointed I have ever seen you. Because sometimes in the Christian church, especially in Appalachia, we actually get anointing confused for anger. Ain't that the truth? We confuse anointing for anger and outrage. And we think outrage is anointing. And you know what? After I heard that, I was like, you're right. Yeah, that's right. I, I, did. I was anointed. Bless God. And you know what that would have fueled if something didn't happen? God did something in his mercy to me because what that would have fueled is this idea that, Clay, anytime you get aggravated, you can go up and unleash because you're right and they're wrong, honey. And just patted me on the back. You're right. They're wrong. We had a couple of weeks later on Wednesday, we had a prayer meeting and a lady came in and this lady was different because she didn't. She hadn't been in church her whole life. She could sense things purely for what they were, really were. She wasn't defiled by religion over the course of so many years. And she came into me and she sat down at that prayer meeting and she was so kind to me. She said, Clay, honey, I love you. And she said, but we're not going to be coming back to church here anymore. And I thought it right that I tell you why. She said, because when you got up the other day, she said, you preached. And she said, I felt like God was mad at me. And she said, when you did that and when you said that, she said, it hurt me deeply. And she said, I didn't know how to get over it. And I just don't feel like I, I should come back anymore. And I, and, I, and I said, you know what? You're right. And I know you're right because I've been thinking about it for two weeks now. And I, I projected an image of God that was wrong. And, and I said, because here's the thing. As Christians, we got to stand up for truth. Amen. Kindness does not mean that we just bow down to culture and stop preaching Scripture and pr stop preaching the truth. But see, Scripture teaches us that we are to speak the truth in love. 
And that there's a disposition in which you can, and a tone in which you can speak the truth, that people can receive it in a way in which they don't feel condemned, or they don't feel like they're being attacked, or they don't feel like they're being brutalized or hated by God. And she felt that, and she sensed that, and in that moment, I realized, Lord, I repented. I said, Lord, I actually allowed some of my anger to get into what I was saying, and it came out on people, and it hurt them. And you know, we do that same thing all the time. God is calling us every day to be a witness to the people around us. And truly, deep down, our anger contaminates our witness. And we, in our, in our pride, we think, but no, we're right. Because we know God and we know the truth of Scripture. But at the end of the day, we're leading people away from God. And I want to quote uh, two, two of my favorite atheists this morning. Is that okay? Um, when I was in college, these two gentlemen, along with another atheist professor that I had, helped, me, helped lead me to the Lord. Because I was reading a lot of books by atheists, and, and by the time I read all their stuff, I thought, man, these arguments got a lot of holes. And not only that, if this is true, then we might as well die tomorrow, because there ain't no good happening. And so they actually helped bring me to a despair and to a place where it actually led me to the Lord, to seek the Lord. But Richard Dawkins, he's one of the leading atheists of our day. And I'm going to tell you right now, you are not going to like these quotes. Disclaimer, we don't believe this. This is what he believes God is like. And he's, he's a leading atheist in our day. He wrote a book called The God Delusion. And in it, he said this. He said, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Now, like, if you can say all those words, we're just going to believe you anyway, right? It's like, man, that, that guy says so many smart words. He's got to be right. But he's got this image of God, man, that is just the most horrific character and nature that you could ever imagine. And, and, and all of these things are basically saying that, you know what, God is harsh, man. He's angry. He's a bully. He hates people. He wants to punish people. And Christopher Hitchens, equally as intelligent, uh, God rest his soul, he put it this way. He said, religion is a totalitarian belief. It is the wish to be a slave. It is the desire that there be an unalterable, unchallengeable, tyrannical authority who can convict you of thought crime while you are asleep, who can subject you to total surveillance around the clock every waking and sleeping minute of your life before you're born and even worse and where the real fun begins after you are dead. A celestial North Korea who wants this to be true. And what I would say is, Christopher Hitchens, I'm sorry, brother, but that ain't true. And I thank God that it's not true because God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ and he has revealed himself in the Old Testament and New Testament both for his primary nature. At the core of his being, he is love and he desires to reveal his love through his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So that when he looks at sinners, when he looks at the evil of the world, God loved you so much that he died for you while you were still yet sinning while you were still broken while you were still wet messed up he was not waiting for you to get it together he said I love them so much that I'm willing to go and allow them to murder me to torture me to torment me and to crucify me on the cross because of my love for them 
God is not a God that is a totalitarian, authoritarian dictator that is over you all. He gives you the ability to choose each and every day what you will do. Now, I understand that I'm not getting into the free will argument of things because when you are in sin, you've got no ability to choose righteousness on your own except the Holy Spirit draw you. I get that. But at the end of the day, I believe we are all free moral agents and God does not coerce. If he coerced, he would have came down and not allowed himself to be crucified. He would have forced you to submit to him, but that's not the kind of God that he is. He allows himself to be acted upon. He allows himself to be acted upon. But see, sometimes we get into this mindset that somehow God is harsh. And when we project this image and we buy into this culture that that's the way that God is, we actually project an image of God that is antichrist. And so what I've got to do often is I've got to give myself a, a self-diagnosis, especially when I'm in public areas. Like I'll check out for a minute because I'll feel the pressure of like being around in public areas or around people. And I've got to give myself a self-diagnosis. What kind of tone do you have? What kind of projection do you have right now, Clay? And well, that sounds it's a little bit sour right there. Like have you ever got on, I, I tell you, this is why I don't make a lot of posts on, on Facebook or Instagram. One, because I'm deeply introverted. And as soon as I put something out there, I'm thinking, I don't know about that. And I pull it back. But the other thing is, if I was going to put it out there, I want to say, what is the tone on this? What kind of image am I projecting? What, am I going to bring blessing into somebody's life or am I going to bring cursing and death into somebody's life with this? And I've got to give myself a self-diagnosis. But here are a few things that I think contribute to the roots of our harshness. Let me give you a quick list here. Number one is competition. We individually, we view others, and even corporately as a church often, we view others as somebody that we compare ourselves to or are in competition against. And y'all get on Instagram and you compare yourself to these others, what they have, what they don't have, how they look, what they don't look like. And in that effort, what you're breeding is this competition and it aggravates you because deep in your soul, you are unsatisfied. And because you are unsatisfied, you become harsh to others. Secondly, we have the violent speed of life. And y'all know this is true. You got kids, you got jobs, you got 11 million things to do during the week. And life is so wide open and you're going a, a thousand miles a minute that you don't even have a moment to stop and consider the person in front of you to give them a smile, to give them a kind word, to think about what they're actually going through because you've got to get over here and do this right now. Amen. Thirdly is numbness. We just, with the violent speed of life, we just become so self-centered that we actually numb ourselves to what anybody else could be going through around us. And we just check out and we say, no, I don't, really, I don't really want to do anything with anybody else. And then fourth is misplaced identity and loyalty. We are loyal to so many different things in our world that we forget that because of the kindness that God has shown us, we actually owe a kindness to the people around us. I have to be aware of the fact. Like I was in an airport, you know, this, this, this past weekend. And I've flown like five times this year. And because I'm so weird and awkward, of course, and tensions are high. Everybody's masked up. You know what I'm saying? Like, and if you pull the mask like right here, they're liable to belt you and throw you off the plane. Like that's, the tensions are high. So you're like sitting on an airplane like this. Oh, don't move too much. You know, and, and everybody's freaking out. 
But, but I'm just like, you know what? I, I try to strike up conversation as bad, as awkward as I am. I'm like, uh, hey, buddy, uh, you know, and I get all awkward with him. And I, and I end up finding out the guy next to me on my first flight was a Christian guy, man. We got in this conversation. He had just flown down to Asbury, and we started talking about the Lord. By the time we were done, we're over here praising God out loud, all happy about what's going on, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and then, then another time, this, this other girl was sitting next to me, and, you know, she wouldn't really talk much. She just sort of had her head toward the window. And, you know what? I popped up a, 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 a canister of gum, and I said, hey, you want a piece of gum? Just trying to be kind. Just working on my character. Because otherwise, I would have sat over there with a... Well, they wouldn't have known what was on my face because all they could see was my eyes. So it's kind of like in a text message. You just assume everybody's mad, right? Like, we need to be more kind in our mask generation because nobody can tell by your face what's going on. They can't see your smile. Amen. This is good. Easy, Clay. Pull back. Number five. This is the best one, right? Politics. Praise God. Our nation and the people in it are more harsh and more divided than ever. And political opinion is the thing at the base layer that is driving the wedge. And researchers have currently said that for the first time in America's history, people's animosity toward their political opponents have now exceeded their attachment to those who lean the same way. In other words, he's saying that we actually fuel ourselves because we hate those who are against us far more than we like those who are with us. Somebody amen me on that. Used to be we would get together over what we're for. Now we get together over what we're against, son. And we hate the people on the other side and we demonize them. And the thing that scares me is that we're beginning to dehumanize those who disagree with us politically. And it's happening on both sides. And people's view of, uh, of Jesus today, even in the church, I think that people's view of Jesus is more influenced by their politics than it is by their scripture. Somebody amen me. People are cultivating a view of Jesus that's more emphasized by whether or not you're Democratic or Republican. I feel like if, if Jesus were a Republican-American, that he would have probably stored up a bunch of AK-47s. And whenever they had come to arrest him, he would have pulled them out with his, with his cronies, murdered Pontius Pilate and the rest of them, and overthrown the Roman government and took over. Amen. That's what he'd done if he's a Republican. Y'all didn't laugh at that, did you? 98% Republican in here. And then, and then the other ones, if, if Jesus had been, and I know that's not true for all, I'm making a caricature here. But if Jesus had been an American Democrat, he would have so capitulated to the culture that they would have never even crucified him in the first place. And then he would have been so angry and upset against those who went against him that he would have oppressed them and dominated them and controlled them. I know those are caricatures, but here's my point, is that as a Christian, you need to hold your political party very lightly. Because what you're doing is you're being trained to create an us and them divide to where you can't be kind across the gap. And now the gospel is no longer the most important thing. People believing what you believe is the most important thing. And you got to understand that when Jesus came to us and revealed his kindness to us, we did not believe what he believed. We were against him. We were enemies of God. They're enemies of God now, but you know what bridged the gap between enemies of God, which were us and God? It was His mercy and His grace and His kindness. And the only way you're going to bridge the gap is not because you get more angry than the other side. It's because you are going to extend mercy and grace and kindness in the midst of a harsh world. Amen. Yeah, you can clap to that if you want. And I know I just offended both political sides right then, but it's all right. You're going to be okay because you're Christians more than you're either side of that, aren't you? 
Amen. Praise God. But the fruit of the Spirit is something God is trying to produce this fruit of the Spirit, this kindness in our lives. And the Bible ultimately teaches that God is kind. See, even in the Old Testament, there's an Old Testament man, a guy named Marcion, and he believed that the God of the New Testament was different than the God of the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament very uh, studiously, what you're going to find is that the God of the Old Testament is precisely the God of the New Testament. And Christ himself believed and taught from the Old Testament that they were one and the same. That this God never changes. He's always been the same. That really, you know, one scholar actually said that how you read the Old Testament actually says far more about you than it says about God. How you interpret the Old Testament when you're reading it actually says far more about you than it does about God. You can interpret it in all kinds of different ways. You can see an image of God that you wish to see that, matter of fact, most often reflects yourself. But see, we believe that there is no distinction, that even in the Old Testament, God reveals himself as a God of kindness and love. Hesed is translated, we've mentioned this word a couple of times, it's a Hebrew word in the Old Testament, for kindness, love, lo- loving kindness. Micah 6.8 says it like this. He says, he's told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. To love kindness. See, God's love, goodness, and kindness are treated as synonymous. And this means that God is love, but when He expresses His love, He expresses it through patience and through kindness. That He holds no record of wrongs. And so we see this in the first disclosure. You remember, we've talked about this several times in the past few weeks. When Moses says, God, I want to know who you really are. And he hides him in the cleft of the rock because he could not see him in his fullness and his back parts pass by and God reveals himself in this way. It says the Lord passed by him in front of him in Exodus 34, 6 and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. He's saying the way that I want you to frame how everybody views me, Moses, is first and foremost, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. I think a lot of People believe that God is angry and ready to blow his hatch at any given moment. And he's saying, that's not, my, that's not my root character. That's not who I am. That's not who I'm trying to reveal myself to. But you say, but what about all those things in the Old Testament where it just looks like God's angry and he's pouring out punishment? You need to understand that in the Old Covenant, it is different than the New because God is also a God of justice. And sin must be dealt with. I want you to imagine for a moment that all of the atrocious evils... When I think about sex trafficking, for example, and I think about potentially one young lady that we loved being sold into such a horrific thing, do you know what would come up in us? There would be an anger and a desire for justice. And if somehow we came to the end and for judgment to be done and the people who perpetrated those crimes against a young woman, we just said, you know what, we're just going to let that one off the hook. We would be outraged. Because God is a God of justice as well. And he will by no means clear the guilty. But see, he has done something in Jesus in which he now can clear the guilty because Jesus has taken the punishment on the cross. But in the old covenant, that sin had to be dealt with. And every time God brought judgment, he brought it as a response to evil and injustice in a gross amount. He would let years and years go on of evil and injustice until finally he says the cup is overflown. I can't allow this to go on any longer. If I do, it will literally destroy the world. 
and he would bring judgment and swift justice. But see, God's heart is always sadness at having to pour out judgment on his rebellious creation. Jeremiah, up until chapter 29, he's writing about the rebellion of Israel, about how they've turned away from God, and it's very strong. But finally, you get to Jeremiah 31, 20, and God says this. He says, Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. So even though God righteously has to judge evil and injustice, he yearns with fatherly compassion for his people. What he's saying is God is like this. You see justice sometimes, but we're going to talk about the wrath of God next week. So you're going to be excited about that, right? Amen. We're going to deal with the wrath of God next week. You are not going to want to miss it, I promise. You're going to find out why the wrath of God is a good thing. But God, in His judgment, hands people over to their own sinful ways and they have to deal with the consequences of it. But do you know that even within Him handing them over to their sinful actions and them experiencing judgment, His heart is still one of a wounded lover, a father who deeply loves them and does not want to see any harm come to them. But He knows that as much as He's been pulling, they will not listen. So He lets them go. But that does not mean that He leaves them. He still waits and He still longs for them to come home. He says, I love them and I miss them and my heart is not for them to come up under judgment and punishment and the evil that they're experiencing. My heart is for them to know my love and I'm waiting for them to come back. You see justice, you see judgment, but His mercy triumphs over His judgment. And so even when He's judging the world, it's in an effort to get them to awaken to His love and to His goodness. Amen. Hosea is another book about God's judgment and his faithful love. Hosea 11, 1 through 5, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek and I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt and will not, and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? You see God's heart in this. He said, I've led them with human kindness, with ties of love. I've desired for them to come in. He says, but they will not turn to me. Every time they get closer to me, they end up going back. And he says, I'm having to allow this to happen because I cannot override their will. They get a choice just like the rest of us. And if you will not repent, you will never experience this love of God. He wants to pour out his love on you more than anything. But he's saying, I want you to turn. Nehemiah is dealing with the brokenness and trying to restore Israel and in Nehemiah 9.17 it says, They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. So here's what we're believing for, folks, as Christian people, is that even though we believe the world has gone crazy... Do not follow suit with the world because Jesus said that because, because wickedness and evil and lawlessness shall abound, the love of many shall grow cold. Don't allow your love to grow cold because even while the world is going crazy, God's heart is still ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abundant in kindness, and He will not forsake them. And we're not going to forsake them either. 
We're going to reach out to them in loving kindness saying this is who God is. He's going to stick it out with you and we're asking you to turn. Even when God's trying to wake his people up, it's not an appeal to his punishment. He doesn't really try to scare people to death to get them to repent. He's trying to get them to open up to his heart of love once again. Now, don't get me wrong. Fear sometimes is a good tactic. It can start you out on the right course, can't it? I mean, I had a legitimate fear of hell. It brought me to a place of repentance. But what I found out is that a fear of hell could not sustain me. It would only cause me to say, I can't do this. But when I found the love of God, and all of my fear of hell was relieved because I realized that I knew the one that had come and died to save me from punishment and hell. Then all of a sudden, my heart is overflowing with this love and with this kindness. And I say, this is what I've been longing for my entire life. Joel 2.13, it says, So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and He relents from doing harm. Jonah 4.2, you remember Jonah? He said, so he prayed to the Lord and he said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. See, Jonah fled because God was kind and Jonah was not. That's the truth. God said, go to, and preach to these guys down here in Nineveh. And those men were wicked. Let me tell you, if you read history, they were wicked. They were deserving of punishment. God sends Jonah to pronounce judgment on them. And he said, no, I ain't going to do it. I ain't pronouncing judgment on them. And he says, you know why I didn't do it, God? Because I knew you were kind. And I knew if they repented, you would show merciful, mer- mer- mercy to them and show kindness to them. He said, that's the reason I didn't go. But see, even in the New Testament, that's just the Old Testament revealing the nature of God. The New Testament, it's summed up in Christ's coming in in Titus 3, 4, and 5. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. See, in Christ what God has done, and you may not realize it fully just yet, but He has revealed His kindness to you. And here's what's so beautiful about it is Jesus goes one step further. And I know we've read a lot of scripture, but sometimes the only way to get a wrong mindset about God out of your mind is to read what the book actually has to say about God. And so Jesus goes on to clarify that this kindness is not just pointed at people who are good to God. So you don't just get to show kindness to the people you like or the people that you deem to be good or the people who are in the same political party as you or the people who do what you do socially and you agree with them. That's not who you get to show kindness to. In Luke 6, 32, notice what it says. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the unthankful and the evil. I'm going to read that portion one more time. I want you to notice that. For He is kind to the unthankful and the evil. How many people, like, I went in this phase there for a minute where, where, like, people were asking me for, when you get a pastor, a lot of times you get asked for things. And, man, we were just hooking people up there for a while, man. I was, 
You know, I felt like Robin Hood or something. I just tossed some money out and clothes and I mean, just anything I get a hold of, just giving it out to people. And, and there were so many times that I'd give it to people and people were so entitled that they wouldn't even thank me for it. And I thought, what in the world is this? And I remember meditating on that. And I'm just like, Lord, if people are going to be that way, we ain't going to give them nothing. I mean, that's just ridiculous. And as I'm meditating along those lines, I pull out a devotion one morning and I come across these verses. And that sticked out, stuck out to me in bold print, for he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Now, how many of y'all are that way? He says, therefore, be merciful just as your father also is merciful. And I want you to notice this point right here. See, Jesus' instinct is to see the brokenness of our world and rather than move away from it in disgust, in kindness, He moves toward it. Because you know what I feel sometimes when I see the world and all the evil and ungratefulness and just reject, outright rejection of God? What I want to do is I want to re retreat and go somewhere and be away from people. You ever feel that way? I just don't want to deal with people because they're unthankful and they're unkind. And see, but Jesus sees our world in its brokenness and rather than move away from it and really have the power to destroy it in kindness, he chooses to move toward it. He moves toward the broken. He moves toward the unthankful. He moves toward the evil to show the kindness and the goodness of God to them in that very place because Jesus is kindness embodied. Amen. He is kindness embodied. How many of y'all you watched the Chosen series here recently? I'm going to encourage y'all all to find the Chosen series. It's on an app. You can watch some of it. I don't usually like watching things about Jesus because I just want a clean vision, but people, people just sort of said, you know what, Clay, you need to watch and check it out. I've not watched all of it, but I, but I watched some of it. And, and, and man, the thing that is the most, I think, tried to, that they try to reveal most about Jesus is just simply his kindness in that show. He's just so kind. It's just it was ridiculous kindness. And, and you know, if you read in the scriptures, Jesus comes up on people that people are being harsh to. A woman breaks an alabaster jar, starts washing Jesus' feet, and they're all harsh like, man, she should have sold that and given it to the poor. And then the Pharisees are like, you know what? If you'd have known who that woman was and what she's done, you wouldn't even allow that to happen. But you know what Jesus does? He protects her. He cherishes her. He respects her. And he shows radical kindness to her. The woman caught in adultery. I mean, a woman caught in adultery. We, we decide, you know, as the religious people, let's stone her, man. I mean, this is legal. It's lawful. She did something terribly wrong. Let's stone her. You and I both would have been there with rocks saying, yep, she deserves it. Let's get her. And Jesus says to him, you know what? You gentlemen here standing, he who is without sin among you cast the first stone. He looks down at this woman in kindness. He says, woman, where are your accusers? I imagine he smiles at her because he's happy for her to experience that goodness and that love. She says, no man, Lord. He says, go and sin no more. And he's dealing with them on that. The, the Samaritan woman, that recently came out, I think, on Chosen. It's amazing if you, if you watch that. But this Samaritan woman, so rejected by her community. And there's people in our community that are that rejected. I mean, we label people walkers nowadays. And people have been so rejected by their community, like this Samaritan woman, that she goes and draws water in the heat of the day just so she don't have to face anybody. And Jesus actually chooses, in his kindness, to go meet just her because he knew she would be there. Just to show kindness to this woman who nobody else shows kindness to. 
And he begins to talk to her and he knows her sins. He knows the deepest, darkest, of her, darkest secrets of her heart. He says, hey, go call your husband. She says, she says I, don't, uh, I don't have a husband. He said, you, you said rightly. He said, because you've had five husbands and the man that you're with now is not your husband. Now, our image of God would say just how sinful. Can I cannot believe you. You've had five husbands and the man you're with now, you're not even, you're not married to him. Like that's our image of God, isn't it? I mean, for the most part, right? That's, that's how you imagine him. But this man tells the secrets of her heart, but not in an angry way. He reveals that he knows everything about her and still loves her. He knows everything about you. And he's not here to judge you, to hold your sins against you. Yes, he calls you to repentance. But do you know that it was easy for that woman to repent? Because you know what? He filled a thirst and a longing in her soul that now she didn't need sin any longer. She was trying to fill a gap in her life that could only be filled by Jesus. And when she experienced that kindness and love, she didn't need it any longer. Her life was changed. That love, that kindness changes people's lives. And we think sometimes, I know some of us men especially, we think that kindness is weak and it's soft. And if you're going to be a man, you can't be kind because people push you over in this life. And, 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 you, and, you, and you end up get, becoming very harsh. But kindness is compassion, other-directed generosity. Maxie Dunham says that the writers of Scripture define kindness as the virtue of the person whose neighbor's good is as dear as his own. So if we're going to have spirit-led kindness, one, spirit-led kindness humanizes, it does not demonize. In other words, it sees not an issue, but a person standing in front of them. And so when you've got a person from a different background that believes differently than you do, that has had, a, you've got to understand that they may have had a different past than you. So I've got to first make this person human. I don't know where they come from. I don't know what they've been through. I have no idea. And that's why, secondly, kindness is willing to listen. I need to hear them out. I can't expect everybody to think the way that I think. I can't expect everybody to have gone through. Listen, I was raised in a pretty good family. Most people were not raised in good families. They're not raised in good homes. And they're broken. They're hurting. They need healing. But see, you have to be willing to listen to people. Before you make a judgment call about who somebody is or where somebody comes from, you've got to be willing to listen. One, one uh, psychologist said that being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, being loved and being heard are almost indistinguishable. In other words, they're saying, I just need somebody to listen to me. Just hear what I've got to say. Number three, spirit-led kindness meets tangible, practical needs. It means that when people are in need, we can meet those practical needs and show them kindness in that way. And then lastly, number four, it creates space for restoration. What this means, and even in the church, and we've said this a lot, we say this almost all the time, that it creates, kindness creates space for restoration. That means that you do not have to be perfect to join in fellowship with us. There is space for you to mess up there's space for you to not be perfect. You can come in among us because we believe that if you walk with us and you walk with Jesus, that Jesus will do His work in you. But if you choose to wait to get your act together before you come in among God's people, you ain't ever going to get your act together. You need to fellowship with God's people, be in God's Word, even when you don't understand, even when you're still struggling with addiction, even when you're still dealing with these things. Kindness creates space so that there can be restoration. Kindness doesn't hold grudges. We don't stand here and say we don't want people coming to this church because we don't like those people. We don't do that. We love those people. Amen. 
And this has to be in our hearts. And so in Romans 2, 4, this is the Passion Translation, it says, Do you realize that all the wealth of His extravagant kindness is meant to melt your heart and lead you into repentance? So here's what it says. This says that it's not repentance that leads to kindness. It's kindness that leads to repentance. So literally they're saying, like, if you repent, then God will be kind to you. Now this says the opposite. This says God reveals His kindness to you in order to bring you to a place of repentance. And that is something that's very beautiful. It's, so it's this, this kindness that leads us to repentance. And see, when we get those things out of order... What we do is we preach a harsh God, we demonstrate a harsh God until people turn and agree with you and then we show kindness to them. But what Jesus is teaching is that we show kindness to people first. And then when they repent, we continue to show kindness to them. Amen. This is good, y'all agree? There was a woman, I'm finishing up here, so hang with me. But there was a woman named Rosario Butterfield and she wrote a book called The Secret Thoughts of an, of an Unlikely Convert an English professor's journey into the Christian faith. And she wrote about how she was, she was a lesbian, college, postmodern professor, and she became a Christian homeschooling mother. And here's how that happened. She was working as a postmodern professor at a lesbian relationship, and this is what she wrote in her book, so I'm not calling her out because she said it. She, because, you know, I just said it. She said it about herself. And so she's doing this, and she's working that job. And Promise Keepers, which was a Christian men's organization, comes into town, sets up at the university, does a big thing. And she writes this critique, man, and she just kind of bashes Promise Keepers and the purity culture and Christian men trying to wave their purity flag and doing all this. And she just bashes it and writes this big thing It comes out in the paper. Well, then over the next few weeks, she got hate mail and she got fan mail both. Some people were like, you know what? We love you, Miss Butterfield. That was amazing. Those guys stink. We hate Christians, yada, yada, yada. And they were just like, that was excellent. And then there were other groups, probably a lot of Christian people that said, hey, we hate you too. Amen. And, and we don't care what you think because we're Christians. And you're going to die and probably burn in hell. Amen. But she said among all these letters as she's sifting them, putting them some in fan mail, some in hate mail after she writes this, she receives one letter from a local pastor and she says as she's reading it, it messed with her so bad that she couldn't figure out whether to put it in hate mail or to put it in fan mail. And so she just left it sitting there. And what she said about it is she said the thing about this man was it didn't feel like he was against me. It felt like he was inquiring about why I felt the way that I did and that he compassionately cared for me and genuinely loved me. And she said it was a kind and inquiring letter. It had warmth and civility to it and it probed her with some questions that she hadn't quite considered. She said it was the kindest letter of opposition that I have ever received. What this pastor didn't do is condone any sin. He didn't say, hey, that's right, we're pastors too and we support you. You know, he didn't say that. But he was thoughtfully and kindly writing a letter to her showing, hey, have you thought about this? Maybe we should get together and chat sometime. And so finally, you know what she did? She said, you know what? I'm going to call this guy up. He wants to chat. We're going to chat. And she said, when I went into his house, 
He, he had read up on me. He had studied about me. He knew that, he knew that, that I was about the environment and I didn't have air conditioning in my home and all this stuff, so he kept the air conditioner off. And, and, and he knew certain things about her, so he had, he had the food that she liked there. And, and he said, she said he was just so smiling and welcoming and, 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 and inquired about other things in her life and developed a relationship with her. And she said it was that kind of kindness that finally allowed me to let my guard down to open my heart to the true love of God. She became a Christian. She followed Jesus. She married a man. She had a child, homeschooled her children. And she said at the end of the day, it was the kindness of God that this man revealed. So in creating a culture of kindness, number one, we need to be kind in our speech. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And man, is this not the truth? You can be walking. You know, sometimes like, and y'all know how it is in your house. You know, like me and Andrea, sometimes we get in little little scuffles sometimes, just like everybody else, amen, right? Come on now, help me out. But you know, something will be resolved and you walk away and then there's just like a harsh word and the harsh word just kind of, oh, oh. All right. All right, Holy Spirit, let's exercise kindness. You know, but that's in all of our relationships, isn't it? A gentle answer turns away wrath. A harsh word stirs up anger, he says. And so the question, and, and, and Andrea says this to me often, right? That I need to audit my tone. I need to pay attention not to just what I'm saying, but how I'm saying it. Because you can say, I love you. <laughs> and have a certain tone about it. Because kindness is not just in what you say, it's literally how you say it. And you got to watch for your tone and how you're dealing with people. And I'm really working on that. Amen. But like on Facebook, on social media, just look at the overall tone of people. Just how frustrated, outraged, aggravated. Oh, look at you. Tough guy on social media. And the attitude is, man, what an idiot. How could these people believe this stuff? And we just live sort of in that, in that worldview. But see, God has called us in our speech to not tear down, to not criticize, to not complain, but to build up to strengthen, to encourage, to edify. He has called us in our speech to represent a different kingdom. Secondly, we need to be kind in our homes. because. And here's the thing that I recognize a lot, and y'all have, we got a lot of kids in this place, and y'all know just as well as I do that when you got kids running around half wild, like your brain almost shuts down if you're like me, right? And you're just like, oh my gosh, what's happening, right? And I only got one kid. Amen. But... but but when everybody's kids are around, like, and, the, and just life is crazy. And in our homes, we get so comfortable with each other but that honestly, in our homes, we give each other our very worst. Do you agree with that? Sometimes Andrea gets my very worst. And that's not right. And God's calling us back to a place of repentance. He says, you got to be kind in your homes because right now you can be aggravated with your family and with your children and whoever else. And there's going to come a day when you wish you had one more moment with them. So we've got to be kind in our homes. And thirdly, we've got to be kind... In our marriages, we end up taking our spouses for granted, even as Christian people. And like I said, our spouses especially get oftentimes the worst side of us. And here's the thing, you can get frustrated and take it out on them. But what you end up doing unknowingly is you create cycles and habits that last for ye days and then months and then years. And unless you interject and start trying to act in a kind way, this stuff could take root in your marriage and ultimately destroy your marriage. Colossians 3.19 says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Matter of fact, the Bible says that if you're harsh with your wife, your prayers can be hindered. 
How many people want their prayers to be hindered? I mean, we're barely making it as, we, as it is. Last thing is I need is for my prayers to be hindered. Ephesians 5.33 says, The wife must respect her husband. The bedrock of love is a habit of kindness. Kindness is the glue that holds our relationships together. Number four, be kind in the church. And this is so important. This is so essential. You know, even, and, and our church does so well because I tell people all the time, I want, I want people to take ownership of this church so that in a sense they feel like they're a part of this family so that when people come in who don't feel connected to this family, you understand that it's your responsibility to show kindness to this person to invite them into the family. And I'm not the only one doing this. I'm not the only one that needs to be standing at the door saying, hey, how you doing, brother? And showing a smile and showing kindness and reaching out to people because we are all one family. This is not Clay's church. This is God's church. We are brothers and sisters in the Lord. We are the children of God called to show kindness in the church. And in the church, our church, the church at large, cannot be infected with this political spirit that's in our world that just divides and outrages and causes frustration and anger and panic and all these things. In the church, we should see more love and kindness and joy than any other place. You should leave here, honestly, you should leave here on a Sunday, you should leave here convicted. The Holy Spirit should always convict you so that you, you feel that conviction. But in the middle of that conviction of your sin and your shortcomings, you feel the love of God overwhelming that so that you are strengthened and you are encouraged to walk out the door to say, you know what, God's going to make me a different man this week. I'm going to be more kind and more loving than I ever have this week. And this is why Ephesians 4.29, speaking to people in the church, it says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And notice this. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. So we just need to take an evaluation. One, have we seen this God and met this God that has revealed himself primarily through his love, which is what he is, in his kindness? Or do you have an image of God that is this angry guy who's just up there? I'm telling you this morning, I do a poor job of representing Jesus Christ. If he were here this morning, it would be so different. But what he does is he takes flawed vessels like me and he lets just a little bit of himself, as much as I will allow him to flow through me and to flow through you. And we catch glimpses of his goodness through one another. And we're just looking to yield to ourselves to this, this Jesus who is loving and who is kind. And like I said, I fall short every day, but man, I'm striving to say, Lord Jesus, would you allow who you are to be in me, to flow through me so that people would get an image of you that is accurate, that is accurate. And that's what we want to pray, amen. I want you to bow your heads. If you're here this morning and you don't know this Jesus that I'm talking about, I want to give you an opportunity to turn to Him. We read all those scriptures about how the Lord is a loving Father. He's just waiting for you to turn to Him, to put your faith in Him because He wants to pardon you of your sins, to forgive you, to cleanse you, to give you new life. And if that's you and you say, I'm ready to take that step just between me, you, and God, would you raise your hand right now let me know? Say, that's me. I'm ready to follow Jesus. I'm ready to surrender my heart and my life to Him. Would you raise your hand up high where I can see it? Anybody at all? Anybody at all? Praise the Lord. 
Now for the rest of us, we just need to take an audit right now. What's in our heart? That harshness, that bitterness. Maybe we're angry at somebody. Maybe we're bitter towards somebody. Now's the time to forgive them, to let it go, and to allow God to restore His kindness. Father, we just come to You right now. And we ask You, Holy Spirit, to come to uproot any harshness, any bitterness, any anger, any frustration that is in our heart, Lord. And Lord God, we want to pray, Jesus, that we would be merciful even as our Heavenly Father is merciful. And Lord, You would teach us to be kind, that You would bear the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, of kindness and of grace and of compassion and all of these things that You are, God, that You would put in our hearts so that when we look at people that we have deemed to be our enemies or believe differently than us, God, that we'll understand that what's going to bridge that gap is not our anger and our self-righteousness and our outrage, but our kindness and our goodness and the love that You allow to flow through our hearts. So, Lord, do a work in our heart. Bring us to a place of repentance, God, in Jesus' name, and fill us with Your Spirit afresh. Amen. I want you to stand here.